Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the annual festival, where architects and commentators discuss the latest challenges and innovations in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at WorldArchFest. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce our second speaker this morning, Jeannie Gang, um, founder of the Chicago-based practice studio Gang. Um, that office has expanded uh, and now operates, apart from Chicago, also in New York, San Francisco and Paris, but that's not the extent of uh, the built work and projects, uh, which include things as varied as the new US embassy in, in Brasilia and the mixed-use Amsterdam Tower uh, in this city. Uh, a beautiful exhibit at the Venice Biennale uh, this year uh, in the Cordieri. Um, and Jean's also this year won the, our WAFEX award for her conversion proposals for a, a disused power station. And I think for the range of work and the scale of work, the practice isn't at all easy to pigeonhole in the usual flip architectural journalist's uh, sense um, and so perhaps it's not surprising that her talk today, Beyond Binary, um, looks at how we might think about the architecture of cities, I suppose, as a beneficial synthesis rather than a series of rather arbitrary oppositions. Please welcome Jeannie Gang. Thanks, Paul. Uh, hi, everyone. Today I wanted to just talk about... Uh, how binary things come into the architectural practice in, in, in certain ways. Um, and, you know, starting with just binary decisions, which are so common today because of our world of digital um, ones and zeros, um, we, we constantly make binary decisions. Um, you could make one right now, whether to go eat a coffee or to stay in this talk, but Binary decisions um, are really a fact of life. They say it comes from our primitive brain where we really are trying to decide whether to, to, how to protect ourselves. Um, but, but really it's not the binary decision-making process. That's pretty much a fact. Um, but it's really the binary thinking that is a problem today. Uh, we see... Um, binary decision-making leading to a, a sense of binary thinking today. This sense of oppositional uh, categories, trying to put people into boxes. Um, and, and this, I think, is underlying the whole idea of uh, the polarization that we see uh, throughout uh, the world and um, pretty much setting up uh, a, a very simplistic way of making decisions. So the good thing is architecture doesn't really, I don't think architecture lends itself to this kind of binary thinking uh, where you set up these oppositions. Um, arch architecture is based on perception and not oppositional thinking. Um, and so that, that's what makes it a really effective medium to be working in today's society. Um, especially in a time, as we heard with... Um, uh, Rene de Graaf recently about um, uh, Piketty's work on inequity 
and and also with climate change, we really these binary oppositions are not very helpful. Well, manifestos, by the way, happen to be binary as well, typically. Um, so what we need is a more nuanced way of dealing with uh, projects and dealing with the world. And so um, with, with our practice, we've been confronting um, pro places, cities, and building types uh, that really can benefit from a more multifaceted and nuanced approach. Um, one place where we're working currently is in Memphis. And you might know Memphis because it's a place where Dr. Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated. It's, it's in the south. It's along the Mississippi River. Um, and Memphis is a place that really was defined by the Mississippi River. It's there because of this transportation network of the river. Um, but over time, and so today, it's a, it's, the river is as roaring and as wide and big as, as anywhere. Um, um, but the city in the past had used it purely for transportation and as a working waterfront, and really the, the city turned its back on this river in the past. So really our project, we were asked to think about how we could reconnect Memphis the city to the river. And, and to, to think about that, it, it's really to think about the many different ways uh, that these two entities connect and, and blend together, um, not just their oppositional relationship. At the same time we started this project, uh, there was also something interesting going on in Memphis um, to do with the past. And that was that um, during the 1960s, several Civil War monuments uh, were erected. So these were not ancient monuments that were put up in, in the last century. Um, and these, these, there was a movement started to take these monuments down um, called Take Them Down Movement. And it, it was really started by this woman, Tammy Sawyer, who's in the slide here. And she um, motivated and, and rallied people around this idea. And the city of Memphis itself also supported the idea of taking these statues down. They were, they were just a, a kind of um, very painful for many people to see, um, and it was just time for them to go. So the question for our project really became, you know, how can communities remake public spaces with complex histories? Um, and, and this is a nuanced question, and it's not about... Um, binary thinking at all. In fact, binary thinking does not lend itself to conflict resolution. Um, and the complex history in, in Memphis really has to do with uh, its role in the, in the slave trade and the fact that there were enslaved people working in Memphis. Um, and many of them worked in industries like the cotton, the cotton industry that, that used the waterfront itself. And so as we began to consider the waterfront in Memphis, um, we, we started to think about uh, the many different parts of it, the many different histories. Uh, one of the places was a cobblestone landing shown here. And you can see that um, this is, this is a, a place, the Mississippi River actually rises and falls about 50 feet in height. And it is... Um, it, it rises up on this cobblestone landing and down, and that's where the trade was all taking place. Um, and so today, this cobblestone landing 
um, is largely forgotten by many Memphians, uh, but it's, it's a pretty hostile place, very hot. Um, but it does have this kind of old, it's one of the oldest places in Memphis. Um, and we wondered to ourselves, how could this place be um, revived or reclaimed or what should we think about this place? It's about 600 meters long. It's a gigantic stretch along, right, right adjacent to the downtown in Memphis. Um, and it's made of all of these different types of geology as well, the, the different stones coming from uh, far to the north, brought down on, um, on boats and unloaded and, and built into this gigantic landing. Um, so we started to ask, what could, could this place, because of its history, very difficult history and very long history, could it be somehow revived or, or reclaimed or given a new history? Um, and instead of monuments that are uh, generals from the Civil War sitting on a horse, what would a 21st century monument look like? Um, and as architects, we, we thought we could help facilitate that question. But we didn't just sit around in our studio and think about the answers to it. Um, we designed a process to engage the citizens of Memphis, including Tammy Sawyer, who is pictured here, and we use the medium of film, video, and um, sketching, you know, to take down the stories of these important Memphians and ordinary people that lived in Memphis. Um, and so th this is an ongoing process, but um, nine of the people that we interviewed and identified, you know, everybody from uh, a, an artist to... Um, a sanitary worker who who worked with who marched with Martin Luther King uh, the night before he was assassinated, and is still on the job. Uh, that's Elmore Nickelberry, um, the mayor, and other people, philanthropists, a whole rich variety of Memphians, and took and started to jot down their stories and listen to their histories uh, to think about how we might translate those into a new kind of memorial. And so this process really, really kind of an unprecedented way of approaching an urban waterfront. Uh, but we just took many notes and, and visual clues. Um, I noticed that architects in the last discussion were, it was said that we don't talk to people. But that's exactly what we should be doing. And that's what we're trying to do at our office and trying to find a method for doing these, these things to really engage the people that are going to be uh, living in this place. Uh, so we translated these stories into the cobblestones themselves. And so it's a kind of first step in the process of carving, shaping, and transforming each of these. They're about 40 pounds each, these cobblestones, into different um, representations of these, these stories. And we did this with both handmade you know, carving, but also with, with digital and very contemporary tools. Um, to take down these stories, sometimes adding to the stones, uh, sometimes taking away. And these are the nine stories that we've collected and, and transformed into the stones. And these stones were then uh, transported to, uh, to the Venice Biennale. And the idea of this was to bring these stories to Venice, to an international community. Uh, and not only these story stones, but also about um, 
600 or so additional stones to install in the Venice Biennale. And, 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 and the idea there is that these, we want to try to think about um, the trajectory of this material and how it carries and embodies memory. Um, we installed it there in, in the Biennale with the stories. Um, and then the intention is to uh, bring those stones back with its, their new history and do an exhibition in, in Memphis, Memphis as part of this process. Uh, we're also using other tools like uh, uh, digital tools in order to survey people. We did one of the largest um, online surveys for Memphis asking people how they would like to use their new waterfront. And we, we got a lot of responses, about 4,000 responses to this in the way that we put it out there um, and from very different areas, people that had been there and lived there in the past. Um, and now we're embarking on a process of this inclusive design process. And I, I think architects may be sometimes scared of this because it seems that someone else other than ourselves are dictating you know, what gets built. But really it's just, it's just another tool that we can all use and it's a very helpful one. Uh, it doesn't mean it's any less creative. And so um, as we move this project forward, uh, we will be engaging with these communities and continue that engagement um, until the, the final project is complete. I think instead of thinking of um, oppositional relationships between things, um, we've always been thinking about creating relationships. So that um, architecture is about setting up relationships between each other and with our environment. Um, and, and we put this into practice in our own office where um, we bought a building. Um, it's, it's a three-story building. Um, and started to turn it into what we want it to be to support our own relationship with each other and with our environment. We, we built a, a roof garden on the top, which is not just an ordinary roof garden, but one that has an incredible amount of biodiversity. Uh, we, we installed something like 48 different species of plants uh, with the idea that over time this can really start to um, become a biodiverse little patch that can grow and I can imagine that someday you would see um, almost like a, a biodiverse corridor in the sky. But one of the most important things is not just, just the biodiversity, it's also the way that we engage with the space. So we, every year we do a bio blitz, which is really counting the number of species of both plants, insects, and animals. And it's a, it's a way for us to connect to each other through, through the understanding and advancement of this idea of biodiversity in the city. Um, and so um, we're in the third year now and we've moved from 48 species to 71 species, so that's kind of exciting. Um, but I think it, it shows like a, a potential way that we can start to think about environment in, an, in, in a more complex way, not just it's good to be environmentalist. It's really about people and making us uh, connect to the space. Um, so that building uh, was also a question of whether to preserve or whether to tear down, but we ended up doing something quite in between, which was to um, 
gut it out and turn it into an architecture office and also build something on the roof. So I think as well, preservation is not uh, a binary choice or a binary opposition. There's also the question of performance. Um, how do we think about performance in today's architecture? Many times it's really just thought about in terms of how a building uses energy or uses less energy, but what if performance was really to think about how a building performs in its context? Um, we know that in New York there are uh, zoning rules that, that call for a setback skyscraper. These are drawings by Hugh Ferris that show um, how buildings were to be shaped in order to bring light down to the street. So that's an idea about um, shaping a building for outside space. Um, our, our site in New York along the High Line was really interesting because it, it's not um, a typical space in New York where there's buildings on either side. This building is along the West Side Highway along the, the Hudson River and it faces an interior block which um, is a green space, a public space called the High Line. And so for this, we really went with the specific idea, let's uh, shape the building to benefit not only the building occupants, but the, the space around it, namely the High Line. And that meant carving the building away in unusual, unexpected ways, not against the street, but really against the, the interior of the block, and also carving away the bottom so that views could be had out to, to, the, uh, to the river. Uh, and so the resulting building is really shaped by these solar angles. Um, the angles that end up bringing about uh, about 600 more hours of daylight to the gardens on the High Line. And so the building is really deferring to that space beyond. Um, and, and this is what those carves would look like. Um, and so we, we treated those as special places for on the outside of the building, but on the inside of the building, they also give a quality. Um, and we're really excited that this project um, is, is taking shape. You can see it there on Axis with the High Line and is also influencing uh, the future zoning of sites around the High Line itself. Um, so as you can see, the, the cladding is going on and you can start to see how this building is completely set back from uh, the space of the High Line in order to afford those light and views for the public that is using it. And in, at the end, it's a benefit for both. Um, as the taller building brings a financial benefit, it, it's also doing something for the public space. I think technology is another place where we can think about um, um, more nuanced thinking, more multifaceted thinking. Um, architecture in manifestos that, that describe like the future, uh, we think of new technology as, as, a, as a goal, at least in the avant-garde. Um, but I think there's nothing wrong with mixing new technology with things that are potentially like old technology or things that are still valuable. Um, we were asked to design this small building for the, the Kalamazoo College, and it's called the Center for Social Justice Leadership. Um, we didn't really know what a Center for Social Justice Leadership would be. There's not really many precedents for something like that. Um, and so for the very program, we looked to older buildings, community halls, and places where people would meet each other. 
and, and architecture, you know, sets up behaviors that, that you can see evidenced in, in the buildings. Uh, for example, the building on the upper right is, is a house for meetings for um, elders in Mali. And they built the roof really low so that the elders, when they meet, they can discuss ideas um, and they can disagree. But no one can really get out of hand and stand up. Otherwise, you would bump your head. And so it's, it's an example of, of um, using architecture to set up really positive behaviors. Um, but looking also as an architect that's things that are older sometimes for inspiration. And, and so for our building, we put this hearth right in the center of the building so people could have these conversations. Um, and it, it really is a building that is, is for lectures, but it's also for classes. It's, it's completely flexible um, for different kinds of meeting. Um, it, it also has little offices for faculty and staff and seminar rooms. Um, and, and a big space that opens up to the environment to connect it that way. Um, when it came to building the structure, we, we wanted to uh, relate to the campus around it, which was mostly made of masonry brick buildings, uh, but also connect to these different contexts. So there's a residential area, the grove, and the campus itself. And with the materiality, uh, we thought of using something renewable. Uh, we, we, we looked at white cedar, which was, um, it's a sustainably harvested wood grown in the Michigan area, very resistant to, um, to rotting and bugs. And at the same time we were thinking of this material, we kind of stumbled upon an old barn that was built in a very interesting way using cordwood masonry, so wood used as masonry. And we thought, what if we could revive something like that? It would be such a great technique for now. Um, and, and it also kind of embodies this idea of community building. Um, and so we essentially learned how to do it ourselves, um, do-it-yourself architecture, but taught by some very experienced craftspeople. To, to build a wall with um, like a contemporary masonry wall, you would have the masonry, which is wood in this case, airspace, and then another insulated layer to produce a very, um, a very positive um, building for the environment. And when you think about it, the trees are already absorbing all this carbon as they're growing up. And so you're essentially you're sequestering the carbon in the walls of the building and creating a community experience in terms of this uh, sharing of the construction, something very easy to do. The result, though, is a, a fantastically beautiful um, uh, tapestry-like building uh, that is weathering with time and, and really gives a sense of uh, scale to the, the human interaction. So in a way, this is like a perfect technology for now, one that um, is not super high-tech, but it, it has qualities that we need in, in the face of climate change um, and, and needing to sequester carbon. Um, as I said, this, this material also has the ability to weather and change uh, with, with time and differently on the different orientations. So I think it will give a real sense of connection to the environment as well as connecting people to each other, which is what we were trying to do. And then I just want to touch on um, how architecture has a nuanced relationship with 
behavior that it creates. And uh, this is an unsolicited project. In other words, a self-initiated project uh, where we wanted to look at uh, the role of the police station and its potential for easing tensions between uh, the community and the police, which you have very strong tensions um, in the United States currently in many different cities. So um, just backing up a little bit, I think w the architect's role is, is really one that um, we have the power to design ourselves. In fact, not every commission has to be a paid commission. Um, and so if we care about things, we, we can w use our medium to address those things. Absolutely, we can write books, we can do projects. Um, here, we were just interested in like, uh, I think at the time we were, we were designing a, a firehouse and we noticed that the relationship between the fire rescue workers and the community members was a very strong one, very supportive one. So why is it such that the police have such a, a difficult relationship uh, with the community that surrounds them? And if you look at the, you look back at the history of, of policing, you find, and I think this is just kind of the, the, the um, British form of policing that was inherited by the eastern, northern part of the United States, so kind of framing it with that. It was really the people who lived in the communities that walked around the blocks and protected their neighbors. And they really didn't have buildings. They had little huts, as you can see in the background on the, on the left, uh, warming huts where they would wait uh, to be relieved by the next person that would come along. Um, with the introduction of the automobile and technology, um, there starts to be a bigger gap between uh, the community and, and the police. So this project we called Polis Station. Polis is a word uh, that, that suggests a very strong community relationship, and we wondered if the police station could someday be conformed, transformed into becoming more of a community-centered uh, place. Um, we, we needed a, a specific example, so we looked at Chicago, which um, built a series of prototypes for police stations about 15 years ago. And in each of them, they, they cleared out areas around the police station uh, for parking. And these police stations became fortress-like. Um, and you can see in this aerial image, the whole entire blue area is, is parking lots with a police station in the middle. And on top of that, a 130-foot wide uh, road uh, so there just becomes more and more of a separation. And the, the result of that is that people, the police begin to not know who they are policing. They live far away. They don't live in the community. And so the, these are things that are adding to the tensions, among other things. Um, so we wanted to ask people, how could this police station um, better serve you in the community? And, and so instead of coming up with ideas ourselves, we really engaged a community of people in North Lawndale, um, both police and community members that we got invited to meetings uh, facilitated by professionals to learn from them of how to facilitate. And we sat down and sketched uh, what they thought could help make the community members less afraid of the police and the police more um, connected to their community. Amazing things came out of the meeting. They had ideas like um, putting computer stations, which both police and community members could use, 
having things like a barber shop in the, the police station, uh, another way to increase connections, um, having a place for youth organizations, etc., having free Wi-Fi. And all of these would, would tend to bring people in for non-enforcement activities and be, make people less afraid of, of coming near the police station. So we would go from this fortress-like uh, building to having more public-oriented program on the public side of the station. As soon as we came to this conclusion and visualized it, we were able to raise money immediately because people are trying like crazy to figure this out to transform um, some of the parking into sports courts, which was one of the ideas that came out of the meeting. Um, both cops and kids love sports. And so we, we raised $40,000 and just immediately installed this basketball court um, on one of the parking lots. Um, and people started using it right away, and now the police actually have basketballs inside the police station for kids to borrow. We went back a year later and asked uh, the neighbors and the cops what they thought and, and really found out that it, it changed, and now that the parents feel that uh, their kids are safer when they play um, on this court. Um, and so that was a really interesting first step, um, and so we think that in the future... Um, we'd like to see this happen in other stations. I've had lots of emails from people around the country trying to implement that this in a specific way in their communities. So the process of this is totally not binary. It's a very complex process of getting information and connecting people and working with institutions and, and individuals um, to, in order to make some first thing happen. Not all, not all relationships are that stressed. Uh, we, we did a building for the University of Chicago, um, and their problem was also about behavior, group behavior, but they found that a lot of uh, undergraduates wanted to leave the university. I guess it has a reputation. It's something like where fun goes to die is their reputation. So here um, we designed um, 800 residences for students, um, connecting to this older campus architecture, but really looking at how you could create uh, relationships in this, in this, during this time when you're in school. So the purple areas there are um, house hubs where every 100 student has a, a, a place where they can connect with their, their house, their group, um, and, and really start to develop stronger relationships while they are in school. So in this picture, you can kind of see the, the lit areas in the middle are the different house hubs uh, throughout the residence hall. And so finally, the last thing about identity I wanted to talk about is just like the identity of what we have in the past perceived as, as a split between nature and urban. Um, what we want to do now is really blend those two things together and to try to find better, uh, stronger connections um, and deeper understanding of nature and not think of it only in the picturesque sense. Uh, this image was taken in 1909 at um, Café uh, Bauer, which, which was a café built along um, an artificially man-made pond where the idea about nature was really one of picturesque um, reflection, uh, strolling, those kind of things for the city. 
um, over time, this this pond b became somewhat degraded in in without much maintenance, and we were asked to come and and try to build a special pavilion here that would make it attractive again. Um, we realized that the the pond was um, it was really more of a place than just a pavilion, and so our work was um, designing a team that could restore the health of this pond, make it much deeper and functioning, and, and, and turn it into really almost like an urban ecosystem. And so now this project has been done for a number of years, and it's it's been the basis of a new institute called the Urban Wildlife Institute, because after we improved the condition of, of the pond in, in many ways, um, it started to attract animals. So it's, it's, it's almost like a zoo that has no cages where animals are coming to display themselves. And the Urban Wildlife Institute here is one that um, is measuring the success and the failures of animals in the city, including collecting a lot of data about all kinds of uh, species from turtles to many different types of birds. Um, and you see this increase in urban uh, biodiversity happening over year by year and, and, and people connecting to it in interesting ways. Some of it is invisible. Like these are night cam pictures of the different rather large animals that are visiting the site. And so the whole thing was really not about the pavilion, but about changing the pond. Of course, you need architecture to um, to make something attractive as well for people. And we, we built this beautiful pavilion that is uh, made of bent wood lamellas. I think the last point is just that the, this is a place that people can interpret as they want. It, it, it was built for um, a place where kids could have classes, but it's been used in many different ways, including uh, for performance. Um, uh, people took it over like in the first week for yoga. Um, but as a, as a kind of evidence that architecture sets up relationships, I think the best evidence is really that it's become the number one spot for people to get engaged and married, um, especially architects who love to get married under this. Um, and, and so it's a frame for human life as well as um, animal life and is used in ways that we would have never um, expected. So thank you very much. Jeannie, thank you very much for that. Can I pick up straight away this point about um, urban biodiversity? When we had um, World Architecture Festival in Singapore, um, we noticed that what started out as wouldn't it be nice to have a bit of greenery in the <laughs> office buildings, I think by the time we'd left, you had a city code which said that in the central business district, when you did a new building, uh, you had to replace as it were, the land that the nature you'd taken um, at a rate of, I think, about 120%. So you had to recreate that nature somehow, possibly on top of the building, but through terracing and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. And I was thinking about that as you showed your own offices um, at rooftop terrace. And I wonder whether uh, in the States generally, especially in the, in the, in the hotter and more humid parts, whether this idea is really caught on, or is it is it still really an exceptional thing at the moment? Mm. Uh, well, I think the, 
green roofs that have been around for a while. The big difference here is is now the technology of the layers and the way that you can seed them um, with regionally appropriate and diverse plants has made it possible to create real um, an ecosystem, a functioning ecosystem on the roof, which was not possible really before because of the thinness of, of, of the earth. So, so now I think that the goal could be, as we know, biodiversity is plummeting, and, and it, the goal could be to kind of make connective corridors through a city that doesn't have land on the ground. But my point, too, was that it's not just about doing that. It's, it's really about connecting people through making it possible for programming. And because what we need right now is is everyone to, to discuss and to learn more about this because and to take action. And who, who actually takes the lead on these things? Is this the kind of city planners or is it individual kind of um, initiatives by architects, landscape architects, trying to put things together? Well, a lot of times architects take initiatives uh, on these kind of programs, but, but if we just do it for ourselves, it never spreads out. So what we did with the BioBlitz was to have an event surrounding this counting, the counting of species, which was fun, and um, w what it did was set up a lot of new connections. So ecologists meet um, our neighbors who are have a school or you know so it it really is it, we have to do these things that will allow these this information to spread and it's through it's through different diverse people meeting as well so i think it starts out with somebody doing it and then um you can spread the word and and it, and it grows from there it's like ground up bottom up kind of process yeah I suppose the, the Memphis project, I mean, anything involving the Mississippi is a sort of, is a heroic task to, to start with. I wonder to what extent um, this notion is, is, is taking root of, instead of um, in a kind of engineering way, engineering way, seeing water as a threat when there's too much of it, a sort of more architectural approach of, well, why don't we embrace it and do something useful with it rather than, as it were, creating fortress structures to keep it out. Um, mm. we, we had an interesting talk about this with some uh, Indian architects who, who pointed out that much monsoon water was just, it was wasted. Yeah. And before you knew you were where you were, you, you had a drought. I mean... Yeah. And with the Mississippi, it's a little different because... It's just, um, it, it moves up and down, uh, like I said, 50 feet or, you know, like within a few weeks it can do that. And it's not just based on the conditions of drought there or, or rising tides. It's a freshwater uh, system. Um, but the, this temperament of, of the changes of the, of the natural conditions and how can, you, how can you move closer to embrace it, how can parks and waterfronts be set up to allow the water to come in and go out yeah. so that you don't end up building your cities so far above uh, the water that, that you, you can't connect to it. Yeah. The other question I wanted to ask, although you didn't show it, I mean, just this is a, this is a general question rather than the specifics of a design. But in, in the work you're doing um, on that embassy in Brasilia, I mean, embassies are really interesting, aren't they? Because they are, a, they are pretty binary. You're a citizen, you're not a citizen. You're allowed in, you're not allowed in. Um, you're, 
uh, you, you're a, a person in need of assistance or you work there. There are a whole, yeah. se there are a whole series of rather binary things. And I wonder whether um, you know, you've been able to have thoughts on how you kind of soften that or mm -hmm. elide it in some yeah. way. Yeah, two things on that. I, I, one thing I was surprised and actually happy to learn that, um, that, that ecology is, is being used for diplomacy because, because um, many different nations are, in, are experiencing severe problems from climate change, catastrophic problems. So, so one of the ways diplomacy works is to help people with um, and, and to exchange knowledge about how to work with certain environments. So one of the things there that we are implementing is, is for the first time, um, this is just about the, the landscape typology in Brasilia, has always been this um, desire to like recreate the jungles of Brazil. That's the kind of iconic landscape. But in fact, Brasilia sits within the Cerrado, which is a, is a very, it's very much like a prairie, like Illinois, where I come from. It's, it's a different kind of landscape which has incredible biodiversity. So we are uh, trying to, um, to cultivate a, a Cerrado landscape and show how it could be done, um, with, which will use very little water um, because uh, you might know that Brasilia is experiencing huge fluctuations right now in its climate. And so that's one way you know, to think about eco-diplomacy or, or a way of... Um, connecting with, with the local place as well, what expertise is there uh, that can help pull this off. So a final question about, about your sort of home city of Chicago. And I suppose, you know, for people with a memory, Chicago politically for a long while seemed to be, I mean, it was, it was real them and us and all the kind of 68 democratic convention and it became a, a byword for sort of certain binary relationships. It's basically <laughs> hatred and more hatred. Um, how is the city, to, how do you see yeah. the city today? Still amazing, I think, for outsiders how separate it is, you know, and the sort of south side still very distinct, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Is, is the city itself um, showing kind of elisions of, of some of its old boundaries? It, it, is it showing the bound? The boundaries are still for sure there, and it's um, you know it, it's, Chicago sells itself as like the city of neighborhoods, which is a way of you know basically saying that people live with their own kind in different <laughs> different neighborhoods, um, and so in it, it it could be a very exciting mosaic if 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 there weren't the tensions and the and the kind of inequities that that is really tearing the city apart. I mean, there is just, it's really the things that um, in the first session that we spoke about, this, this growing inequities that are just making it harder and harder and the, the prices of housing harder and harder for people to connect on a regular basis um, or to connect with people that aren't like them. And every city, I think, is having this. So, so you know, we have to look for places where those connections might occur and, and, and think of both design as a programming exercise as well as, as a design. We have to design a, process, a new process in order to um, engage with people. Otherwise, as Rainier was saying, you, it, it will just be that architects only work for 
um, the rich, and that's not it, our skill sets are much greater than that. We we have the abilities to to find the the patterns of connection to to make things. So so yeah, it's it's a struggle still in Chicago and, and as it is elsewhere. Jeannie Gang, thank you very much indeed. All right. <laughs> thank Brilliant. you. Yeah.